What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Episode, I don't even know what. Somewhere in the high 140s, I'm sure. Today, diving into the 30th... My God. Sorry, 13th volume of Jim Butcher's Dresden (laughs) Files. Getting a little ahead of myself there. We are on Ghost Story. I'm your host, Rob Santos. Joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And a quick reminder to everyone that if you enjoy the content, if you want to check out some of our extra stuff, like, say, our own writing pieces or perhaps access to episodes early, or even if you want to recommend books for us to read, check out our page on Patreon or Coffee at Inking Out Loud. Drew, you've got your hands full today, I assume, with this recap, so let's just get started. All right. Ghost Story, the 13th book in the Dresden Files, is precisely that. Harry finds himself in the afterlife after being shot and killed at the end of Changes, and is presented with a choice. He can either move on to an uncertain eternal fate, or he can remain as a spirit and help in the supernatural struggle in Chicago. Harry being Harry, he chooses to help. With the order to discover who killed him, Harry first heads to Mortimer's house, as he knows the Ectomancer will be his best chance of connecting to those still living. He finds himself embroiled in a battle with wraiths, and a mysterious and powerful force called the Grey Ghost, which is accompanied by the spirit of Evil Bob. But, with the help of some friendly spirits, the enemy flees. Harry then proceeds to Murphy's house, where he hopes to reveal to all of his friends that he's there to help in the new war against the Fulmore. Despite much suspicion, and some secrets let slip to the White Court, Harry establishes his credentials after Molly arrives. He learns that Molly has been going over the edge, killing people across Chicago and establishing her reputation as the Rag Lady. Before he can act, though, a drive-by shooting occurs, and Harry tracks the shooters. He decides to help one of them, a young man named Fitz. Harry then returns to Mort's house, only to find it destroyed and Mort captured by the Grey Ghost. He engages in his typical sleuthing, and with the help of Fitz, tracks Mort to the hideout of the Big Hoods. Harry sets up an attack, leading an army of spirits to the Never-Never. Bob and Evil Bob are left behind to duke it out, while Harry heads into the lair. He realizes that the Grey Ghost is actually the Corpse Taker. After a pitched battle, and with Harry nearly bereft of power, Molly and the Corpse Taker engage in a duel of the mind. Harry finds himself dragged in and discovers a memory. He planned his own death, and with the help of Molly, erased his memory of it. Uriel arrives and talks to Harry, revealing that the balance of choice was upended by one of the fallen, and the Archangel is allowed to help redress the wrong. With the timely help of Mort and an army of wraiths, Molly defeats the Corpse Taker. Harry is given another choice by Uriel, to either work for Uriel in the between, or move on to what comes next. Harry visits those closest to him before choosing to go through the unknown door, and finds himself waking up in the care of Mab and Demon Reach, who kept his body alive for all those months, and now expect Harry to fulfill his bargains. Ooh boy. <laughs> I really like this one. And that surprised me just a bit, since I've been yeah, I've been familiarizing myself a bit more with the Discord server lately, just Discord in general, I should say, if I'm being honest. And I've been seeing what mm-hmm. everybody's talking about in our groups we do have you know a spoiler group separated i haven't really been in there at all but i saw this particular thread when some were ranking the books from favorite to least favorite i'm pretty sure that was in the non-spoilers group and i got the impression that ghost story tended to fall below the median at least for most of the list that i saw i think if i'm remembering correctly 
Um, mm. But I went into it, I expected a plain-ish ride, even though I know it's going to be a Dresden book. I know there's going to be a lot of one-liners that make me laugh. There's going to be some cool action. It's going to be a few things that irritate me, of course. But uh, honestly, it was kind of awesome. I, I think this is definitely in my, uh, I don't know, it, this, this is probably in my top five, I think. How about you? Wow. Uh, I I don't think this would make it into my top five, but I definitely think it's in the upper half of the series as we've covered so far. Maybe it's Maybe six, six or seven. seven. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. you. Um, so I, I certainly liked it more than Changes. Uh, but, but it was slow going um, through the first half, especially. Uh, this is a very very heavily character-oriented book. And the vast majority of that is on Harry, whom I'm, you know, of whom I'm not the biggest fan. Right. right. Uh, as a character. I and think you so, mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, and so I was I was struggling to get into it, um, even though I, I really liked the premise. But I thought it ended very strong. Uh, this is one of the best endings in in the series for me. the The character moments were brilliant. Uh, you know, I've I've been very vocal about how I think the strongest parts of this series are the characters around Harry, and the end of this book really got to shine a light on those characters, especially Molly, who is a fantastic character. Oh yeah. Um. And and I liked, I liked how the ending really settled on a lot of philosophy. It wasn't necessarily about you know the big, you know, fireworks and battles and and all of that. Uh, it was a lot more about the the quiet contemplation of what's going on inside the characters' minds, and that's that's the stuff that I I think Butcher's at his best doing. Hmm. Yeah, I will say um, of my two honorable mentions and three favorite scenes that we'll be talking about later, I'm pretty sure I have three scenes from the last chapter or maybe the last two chapters. So this was, in my opinion, I 100% agree. This was a stronger ending than the rest of the book was. But I, I mean, I, I found the rest of the book to be pretty exciting. You are right, though. The ending was what really made this book stand out for me quite yeah. a bit, though. 100%. Yeah, definitely. Like, there, there are a few things still present that I'm not liking, or maybe I should say not liking anymore because they did work for me in the in the first half of the series. But you know, a few of these crutches that Butcher has, they're not just not landing for me anymore. Some of them are starting to get vaguely irritating. This whole chapter ends as Harry's about to die scenario. And this, well, I guess in Ghost Story, die a little more or whatever. Um, things like just re-explaining the world or re-explaining the magic details, like how, how his sight works for the 25th time, I'm sure. Um, a character returns and we immediately recognize their description, but we have to wait two or three minutes for the exciting scene to end before their name comes up again. And it's, you know, this is like, I'm talking about Butters and Bob here that happened with Butters mm -hmm. and Bob. Um, a lot of these things are happening several times per book, but aside from these are, those are still minor complaints. Besides those, I still overall really, really enjoyed Ghost Story. And I did spend a lot of, <laughs> I did spend a lot of time in this book wanting to smack myself for things that I forgot to bring up in Changes. All, like, so many times. For example, Kincaid. <laughs> I totally yeah. forgot to bring up Kincaid when I when, when Harry got shot at the end of Changes. I could have sworn I had written down a note somewhere that said, huh, powerful bullet from very far away. 
that sounds an awful lot like oh, Kincaid's yeah. work, oh, doesn't yeah. it? But and then we had the clues that kept mounting, that kept mounting. I'm punching myself again. Damn it, it's so obvious. They start talking about how Kincaid was also in town at the same time. Um, I was actually starting to get irritated with Butcher there for making it so obvious it was Kincaid, but damn it, Butcher, you got me, man. There's a reason yeah. he was being so not subtle about it. That twist, I didn't really yeah. like it, but it worked very well. It did. It got me completely by surprise. So there were still some surprises in this book. Overall, I, I give it, this for me is still an 8 out of 10. I did very much enjoy this book. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably give this like a 7, maybe a 7.5 overall, but that's largely carried by the strength of the ending. Mm. Um, yeah, like there were a couple of points that I... I noted you know in my ebook file where i was like you know the paces just really started to crawl um really where i was getting frustrated uh i was i was just kind of bored with the book early on and uh and then those went away really in the last third um mm. uh, yeah like the the scene um the scene with molly and Leah, and you know when Leah sets all of the Fulmore servitors on mm-hmm. her, yeah, uh, that that was kind of the the tipping point where I was like, okay, I'm I'm much more engaged now. Uh, now that we're getting more than just Harry focused character development, we're we're taking a closer look at Molly, yeah, and and that carried it through. Did were there so. any were there any points at which just uh, just out of curiosity? where you pulled yourself back and you went, wow, this is a very long description. This is a very long bit of exposition. For me, it was description. It's the, 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 a very, like, the most notable one for me would be in chapter 31, the flashback sequence in the convenience store. As soon as the, the creature arrives, the demon, um, mm. he who walks behind, mm-hmm. I think. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to the audiobook, put it that way. And describing this creature goes on for minutes i mean i I mean that literally it is minutes he is describing this one creature um i'm thinking translating that to page i'm like this is this is more than an entire page about the description of a of a single creature i like at one point near the end of it i was like okay i get it it was intimidating like nine paragraphs ago let's get a move oh my god he's still going like there were a few points where those descriptions butcher seemed to run really run away with them but did did you did you have any of that at all, or am I just like? Uh, I did. You did. Uh, in fact, that specific scene, I I had a note about where I was like it. It felt very drawn out uh, in terms of the like the looming setup of it, mm-hmm. where and and so that ties back into the points where I felt like it was dragging. A lot of in fact, two of the three times that I I made notes that I felt like the pace was slowing down or that I was getting bored. It was in uh, flashbacks to when he was working with Justin. Mm. What about the, uh, the, the wholesome one with the gift and the baseball bat that one drag for you? Or is that like, I, that was heartwarming for me. I actually liked that one. Um, uh, no, um, that one I did not have a note on. Okay. Uh, yeah, I actually did. It was going to make my, my one of my top three, but then again, it it got moved out several times. So, but yeah, I've I've actually I should, pretty much I covered should say, all. Say like, Go I ahead. had a note earlier in that scene. Um, oh, when they're working on fire, like I I highlighted. Um, okay. Yeah, it, for for this ebook, it was on page two hundred twenty six, down at the end. 
and Justin's like, you know, once more, if you please, trying to work on it. And the next paragraph starts with, I sighed. And I made a note. I was like, yeah, so did I. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I can see it. So it was, mm-hmm. yeah. But, but I mean, overall, it's a, it's a strong book. I think for me, I really needed, uh, I needed to like this book uh, after changes because I was very uninterested in continuing with this series. You know, I was always going to continue because of the podcast, Man. but where changes ended, I was just like, I don't care. And, uh, wow. And wow. And this, so this book me. made me care again. What? So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm through my, my style points. You have anything else about style? Should we dive straight into characters? Um, uh, like a couple of kind of miscellaneous writing style things. Throw it out, um, man, let's hear it. Uh, this book felt a little bit like the phenomenon that occurs in the gap cycle with Stephen R. Donaldson, where it's like you can really tell when Butcher discovered a new word oh, and then he okay. just like uses it a bunch. Oh, that he's never used before, and then suddenly he's using it. Uh, the one in this book that stood out is Gimlet. Everybody Gimlet. is casting around Gimlet looks. Huh. I guess, yeah, that didn't stand out to me because I was just listening to Marster's uh, delicious tones. Dulcet tones. I was going to say dulcet tones. Yeah, I, I didn't stand out to me, but that's probably just because of the medium that I'm reading in. I'm, I'm, that yeah. Uh, and, exactly and this the carried kind of thing that would piss me off, though. Yeah, this carried back into uh, Aftermath as well, the short story. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, yeah, where there were just lots of gimlet looks mm. where people are kind of like, you know, giving him the fish eye or, or you know, like that that oh. was that was the thing that stood out where I was like, okay, so he recently discovered that there's a a, a different definition for gimlet and it doesn't just mean the the cocktail. Ah, yeah. I never even heard of the cocktail. I'll be honest. I'm in enough to admit it. <laughs> so Yeah. Oh, and uh others? Um uh, let me look. Let me look at my notes here. No, I do not have any more style points. Cool. Cool. Let's talk about our uh, not-so-favorite wizard. Okay. You made a few... Let's do it. I, I really... I sound really conflicted right now. I'm not conflicted. Sorry. I'm just trying to f- phrase what I'm thinking here. I still like Harry. I still like Harry. To me, it sounds like a lot more than you do. I'm a lot more invested in Harry than to me it sounds like you are. Um, I kind of thought this was going to be what it was. We made some predictions last episode. I'm like, this is going to be a return to life kind of battle for him. Um, And it was, but it wasn't. Um, But it was still, I found it to be a lot of fun. It was really cool to see Harry in a completely new helpless situation that he that he hasn't been in it makes him explore parts of himself that he hasn't had to before being powerless in certain ways that frustrate him i i did like a lot of where harry had to go in here although there were a couple there was one little point at which i was like harry you pissed me off with that one and this is when he's um he's talking about his daughter and the quote is here my daughter maggie i deprived her of a mother just as someone had deprived her of a father and I wrote, no, Harry, that was you who deprived her of a father. The moment that you said you don't even want to know where she ends up. 
That was you refusing to be a father. I know your his intentions were to protect her, but he's does that doesn't mean he gets to blame someone else for that choice. He still made the choice. Oh, no. I I read that very differently. I thought he was a, um throwing shade at Susan for not for hiding Maggie's existence from him. Oh my god. Light bulb. Okay. Hey, <laughs> you guys think we could like rewind about 90 seconds and just pretend that I didn't open my mouth? That'd be great, right? No, Drew, you just totally cleared that up for me. Thank you. Okay. All right, Harry. Yeah. Give you that one. All right. That kind of pissed me off because I'm still, I'm just, I want Harry to still be more involved, even though I know he's got a lot on his plate right now. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, no, I misread so that one. I, I, I want to kind of rewind a little bit, though, uh, to before that point. And, and maybe this is kind of a style bridge, but uh, I I appreciated, you know, I kind of touched on this in the in the opening discussion. I appreciated how Butcher is forcing Harry to change as a character and to adapt. Uh, we see Harry becoming a lot more com- contemplative and thinking things through. Uh, and and it's not just that we're being told. Uh, that he has to do this by Harry himself, but we're being shown the way he's changing through his interactions with the she, especially where, uh, you know, Leah is noticing, you know, you're thinking things through in ways you didn't used to. You're, you're a more, you know, demanding person to bargain with. Now Uh, we're, we're being shown his growth as a character. And, and that's the kind of thing that like, I really need, you know, like as a, as a reader, I need Dresden to to grow if I'm going to care about him. Mm. And and that's why by the end of this book, I, I was like, okay, I care about this series again in a way that I definitely didn't at the end of Changes. Um, I think this, this is a really different kind of book than Changes. Changes was all the flash in action. Just constant run into one place, fighting yeah, yeah, going to the yeah, next place yeah, fighting sure. action scene after action scene battle after battle just crazy chaos and violence and huge magic and and everything just relentless onslaught of um you know stimulation and then this book slows it down uh and and while that you know it slowed it down a little too much at some points i think uh, I think it was a needed slowing overall in the grand scheme of the series, and that's important for Harry. You know, uh, he he has always been this character who just goes brute force, kind of right up the middle. He's good at thinking flexibly until it comes to that inflection point of, all right, now I need to deal with this the way I deal with everything, and that is usually with lots of fire and violence. And here, he can't do that. He's physically, spiritually yeah, incapable he's of in doing com- that. Completely uncharted territory for himself. It's yeah. yeah, and so he's he's so much more interesting when he has to figure things out and use his head instead of using his raw brute force. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. And and well said. I think that that like ends up foiling really well with uh, Molly's character, who uh, is yeah, the cerebral one. You know, like, it, it it makes so much sense that 
the way the problem's ultimately solved is that Harry has to go inside Molly's mind and see what Molly thinks before he can figure out how to fix the situation. Hmm. What do you think? Very thematically appropriate. What do you think of the Enterprise scene? So I'm not a Star Trek fan. Same. But uh, so like I don't get the like you know nostalgia like ooh cool like I don't the- get that out of it. But <laughs> I think that was a really strong scene. What? Oh, oh, oh uh, uh, character driven in in a way strong, very yeah, strong. Like hell yes. We get such a a not necessarily needed but a powerful look into how Molly's mind works. Uh, where we see that there are still parts of herself that she sees as childlike. We also see there are parts of herself, you know, that she's a little bit scared of. And that she doesn't always, you know, she's kind of fractured in a way. Um, uh, and this is our visual representation of the madness that we, we'd been told is happening with her throughout this book. And then we see what it really means in execution. Mm. I thought it was a very strong scene. Yeah, I was I was just so off put by the setting that I wasn't really in the moment appreciating what I could have been about the characters and how much it meant for Harry and how much it meant for Molly. I I, I hadn't really appreciated it, honestly until I came out of it and I went, oh, that was nice. But in the moment, I was just a little weird. I was like, really the the bridge of the Enterprise? Okay, maybe I should just maybe I need to have seen the show to really appreciate this. It was a little odd of a setting for me, but what came out of it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, uh, and on, honestly, like, I don't have a strong mental image of the bridge of the Enterprise. I think I I've maybe do. seen like two episodes of Star Trek ever. Uh, yeah, my dad used so, to watch it all the time, but I never. Yeah, read it. so I was a like, kid. yeah, I didn't have a problem with that scene because I just kind of blurred the background in my head. Did he actually because, specifically? And so I got to focus on what's important in the scene, and that's the character interactions. You know, did he? Did they? I forget. Did they actually specify whether it was Picard or Shatner? It was. They say like the original. Okay, it'll be a Shatner one then. Yeah, like uh, old, old school. Old school. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Not like, Star Trek. Uh, they the mentioned Leonard Nimoy at one point. Mm. So. Oh. So okay. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I st- Harry's humor still all over this book. I mean, the Lecter Specters. Every time that freaking name came up, I'm giggling with with childlike glee. I mean, yeah, there's still ah, Harry's humor alone is enough to keep me interested in him as a character. But of course, the fact that I've been with him for 13 books, I'm now invested in it just in terms of momentum as well with Harry. But he still finds all these ways to make me laugh, even as a ghost. I think he's it makes him even funnier. When he has to really constantly be using his brain rather than his brawn, so yeah, Harry was a was a hoot for me in this book. <laughs> uh, I I mean I don't think he was any funnier for me, but you know we've been over this this yeah. issue since yeah we have. We, However, I will admit there was one point that did make me chuckle. Huh? Uh, and and again like. I just I don't understand humor. <laughs> I need to figure okay, this I'll, out. Maybe I'll I'll try once because... again to see if I can dissect it. Go ahead. Because, you know, there's the opening line of Blood Rites, right? Where the, every every Dresden fan loves that, you know? Yeah. The building was on fire, on fire and it, it wasn't, wasn't my fault. fault. Yeah. You know? And, and I was just kind of nonplussed by that. Like, I was just like, eh, whatever. 
Like it, it didn't work for me. I didn't, I didn't think it was funny. I, I didn't, I don't know. But in this one, there's a, a bit where he's considering creating his own like ghost world pocket. And he talks about Agatha Hagglethorn from yeah, you yeah. Know, Grave Peril. And he goes, you know, she'd had her own little pocket dimension filled with a future Victorian era copy of Chicago. And then in parenthetical, it burned down. And then a new paragraph, again in parenthetical, I was not responsible. That made me laugh. <laughs> that was in parentheticals? Yeah. Uh, both of them, each line is, is a parenthetical and it's its own paragraph. That's funny. I That's think, even funnier than the audiobook like, delivery. That's awesome. Like I think the the structure of it, the choice to make it a parenthetical, to to make them each their own paragraph, is what makes it funny for me much more than the you know through line theme of like he burns things down. Right. Uh, it, especially working with the first person point of view. Uh, it's it's like he's at some level Harry is telling us this story or he's telling this story to an audience and the way this works is like he's like in the flow like uh, before this we have some pretty significant chunk long paragraphs uh, like one two three four the, f- the previous five paragraphs uh, in this scene there's a there's a page break and then there are five paragraphs that are all like three plus sentences long uh most of them are much longer and then and so you if you're thinking about it in the uh in in the abstract the idea of this is a man sitting down and telling a story to somebody he's in the flow right like when you're when you're caught up telling a story to to your friends you end up speaking in a rhythm and in a flow that were you to create a transcript would be in long paragraphs. And then this interruption of the paragraphs for two parenthetical one-line paragraphs is like he's talking and then he stops and he's like, it burned down. I was not responsible. (laughs) You know, like, he interrupts his own story to be yeah. like, look, look. Yes. Yes, it burned down. Not yes. my fault. All right, and then down, he goes back to the fault, story. <laughs> so, like, there's there's a situational humor to the narrative style. Uh, so maybe I just talked myself through it. <laughs> would you right? agree that Harry Dresden has a very distinct voice? Do you feel like you would be able to tell him speaking over a lot of other characters, even in Dre- or other everything? But like, take out names, put a whole bunch of scenes from a whole bunch of fantasy series together. Take out names. Would you think you would still be able to tell Harry Dresden every time? I feel like I could. Hmm. Mm, maybe. Hmm. I've read a lot of characters who have this kind of like. You have read far more characters than I have. I will also say that. Yeah, like I, I feel like a lot of in the last like 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years of, of science fiction and fantasy, there's been a tendency toward characters who are sarcastic and snarky yeah. like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd say there's some of the flavor of the, 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 the illusions. 
you there know? may be something to oh well yeah if so so when you're saying like remove the names it would depend on how far you go there because yeah right. he he has a tendency toward pop culture allusions and metaphors mm-hmm. that a lot of other characters don't especially because most of the other characters who I yeah, think I feel like give me two or three like Harry are not are not from earth yeah right so they're not going to be making references to Star Trek or Facts. Lord of the Rings or Facts right you there. know True. so but yeah, I for me, I just feel like Harry's got this this voice that I can tell anywhere when I, as soon as I see it on the page. I, I mm. yeah, I do like Harry. It's I'm a big fan. Uh, anything else yeah, about yeah. Harry though? We have talked about him quite a bit for a character we have talked about twelve times previously. Well, I I think that goes to show how important this book was in terms of hey. developing Harry. Like astutely observed. Yes. The the series needed to change. After changes. <laughs> yeah. Fits in the theme. So. Um, all right. Who are we talking about next? Let's talk about Murphy. Murphy. Okay. How are you feeling about Murphy I'm right so, now? She broke my heart in this one. And, like, not she herself. Obviously. Like, it just, it hurts me to see her in this kind of depression. And it hurts even more to know it's because of her shock and inability to fully accept harry's death you know it's oh it's just seeing her like this fits in a tragic way and i it hurt me inside deep inside yeah yeah so i've never been the biggest fan of murphy throughout these books you know there there are points even i think we talked about this a, a good bit on on that aftermath patreon episode um there are points where i'm like okay yeah like she's she's feeling like a, a more complex, more dynamic character. But overall, I really feel like she's a bit of a caricature. She's she's a larger-than-life, heavy-handed way of Butcher being like, female empowerment, Girl you know? And, and this book, none of that's here. Like, this book, she is such a real, broken troubled person that was like i was actually invested in in what's going on with her like she felt more like a human being rather than a literary symbol of of like you know look at look at the the tiny woman who's a better fighter than all the dudes and and hates chauvinists and like you know (laughs) there's uh she became a quieter character in this book and a far more compelling one for that reason. Yeah. And I'll be talking about this a little more during our favorite scene. Sweet. Sweet. I I actually might be as well. I'm having trouble remembering exactly what they are right now. Um, but I, I, that, I did not write much about Murphy. That was pretty much all I had to discuss. Okay. <laughs> I will say, I will have lots more to talk about in cold days. <laughs> I'm yeah, you're you're days. like nearly done with that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for for those listening, uh, we are recording this on Saturday, November twenty seventh. Uh, we were originally going to record it like a week and a half ago, at least uh, before oh I went out to Utah. Um, I was I was out in Utah for six days for the uh, Cytonic book release, and there was a 
uh, mini convention and, and, uh, you know, I was visiting friends and, and so we were really cramming, trying to fit a whole ton of stuff. I think we recorded like five episodes in eight days, um, between like the wheel of time predictions episode and the, the Patreon episode for November and, and then a couple of the regular books and Cytonic, we had to do our Cytonic episode. Like it was, it was crazy there for, for a little while. And so, um, so yeah, we're, we're recording this on Saturday, the 27th, and we're going to be recording cold days on the, this coming Tuesday. What, what mm-hmm. is that? The 30th? 30th? Yeah, yeah the 30th. Like um, so, and I just finished ghost, ghost story, like, I don't know, a half an hour before we started recording. And I need to now read Cold Days in, in about two days. Yeah. So yeah, back to I, the grind, man. I, I've just been keeping myself busy with, you know, part-time welding, part-time school, and part-time podcasts. I, I basically have three part-time jobs, kind of. But it's not I, – I can still generally do it either here or 15 minutes that way where I work in a metal shop and then come right back here. All of that gets done between two distinct points. And so yeah. I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, hmm. I do not envy your past. I, I, I take that back. I very, very much envy your past week, my friend. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll have. I don't know. Uh, that'll. I'll, I'll talk about that in the December newsletter. I think. Um, obviously, not going to go into a ton of detail um, because there there are some NDA things. But uh, I, I did get to do some pretty cool things while while I was out there. Yeah. So. Yeah, that sounds. Um, but but back to back to ghost story. Um, I didn't know what it was. Who do you want to My talk about? Next? Making it better than it could have been. Um, let's see here. Uh, Bob. I want to talk about Bob. Okay. The scene inside Bob's apartment first. That was really amusing. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked um, that scene a lot. Yeah, uh, there was some mention in this chapter, some sort of agreement between Butters and Bob, something about a contract for a, a ride along or something. I was like, oh, geez, someone needs to yeah. separate these two. Stat, get a water bottle. What the hell? <laughs> but. Uh, it, you know, Bob versus Evil Bob, something that everybody's hoping for right away, figured was going to obviously happen at some point. But Bob spent so much time refusing that idea in just cold turkey that I legitimately bought it. I thought he was not going to fight his nemesis, and at least yet. I thought he wasn't going to do it yet in the series. But showing up doing it anyway, that was, uh, yeah, Butcher managed to get me off of that track for long enough that I forgot about it, and it was a pleasant surprise again. So much fun. Bob rolling around there. It was, ah, I, I, I love it when Bob gets to throw um, non-hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, literally stuff. threw hands in that scene. Oh, because well, that was all in the spirit had, world. Never they, mind. They, yeah, they had bodies. With yeah, Bob. they were in the Never Never. Yeah. Evil Bob's going to catch these hands. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the episode title for today. No, no. But, um, yeah, Bob was... I mean, that, that was a, a classic... Uh, these characters will show up again. Nobody died in that scene. Like the, mm. it's it's just such a trope, you know, where where there's an overwhelming bad guy force and the and the good guys have to run away and one of them stays back to sacrifice himself to fight them off. And it's like one hundred percent of the time, the one who stayed back to sacrifice s- survives. Like, <laughs> yeah, there there's yeah. zero chance. You we know? have not had. Danny do a depiction of Bob yet, have we? It'd be interesting. To, oh, I don't think we to have. bounce that one around. Ah, ha, yeah, maybe but, maybe we'll do the like maybe two Bob skulls like facing be, off for this that'd be one. Cool. Oh man, yeah. how would you just 
make them distinct though without using color. Hmm. I'm sure Danny could come up with a far better visual solution than I yeah. not, you or I could. Um, yeah. That's an idea though. We'll run it by her. Um, let's see here, Daniel Carpenter. I figured you. I figured you would actually want to talk about Daniel Carpenter. Anything? He bothered me. <gasps> um, what? He was frustrating. Whoa! Whoa! Uh, whoa that's not what I expected. I mean, at all. Okay. Like he's not a bad character. Uh, I think he's just immature. You know. Uh, he was he was frustrating in in how he approached some situations where he was very prone to jumping to conclusions, being impulsive, made a lot of mistakes because of that. Uh, but hmm. uh, I don't. Know, I I was definitely interested, especially when they went to fight Aristides. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> where I was like, is like is he gonna have some magical ability too? Like, are we gonna see him start getting developed the way we saw Molly? I don't know, man. He seemed oddly competent in that fight, like even more so than you would expect yeah. about somebody who's just had a decent amount of training and a lot of inspiration from one of the greatest human badasses to ever <clears throat> ask bad, Mr. Michael Carpenter. But still, yeah. he seemed oddly competent there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we know that Charity can pass on the gene for, I think we know that Charity can pass that on. I'm sure that was confirmed. Yeah, right? yeah. So, I mean, Molly. Well, obviously, you know, Molly so, got it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. And uh, who knows? Who knows? Ooh, what about Little Harry? What if there was a reason that Nicodemus went for him with the coin in the first place? No, that was to, oh. that was to get mm. Harry Dresden, wasn't it? Well, there mm. could be, Food could for be layered reasoning behind Food that. Food for thought. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, like, yeah, how many kids do they have? Five? Like five, five or six. six. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, or I was about to be like, man, like there's, they've had so many kids. There's got to be more than one of them who has magical talent and then i was just thinking about like genetic through lines and, and then thinking about my family where uh, i am one of six kids and i am the only one of the six with blue eyes ah <laughs> and i was like look well, maybe, maybe magic trait. is that a recessive sense. trait yeah is it is, like, is maybe is magic is a ability? recessive trait yeah i think i imagine magical ability would be a dominant trait but i don't know well i i feel like it can't be if only molly has it right but we don't know if that kids. only molly has it yeah, right. yeah, but so yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's that's cool. That's good to mull that one. <laughs> but I, I thought Dale Carpenter was was awesome. He he's going to. I will say that he'll make. He's making it into my favorite scenes for today. So I'll refrain for mm. from talking about him too much here. But I'll say that he does his father proud. So I think so. I would imagine so. so. Okay. Okay. Um, anything about Morty Mortimer Lundquist? Big fan. Big fan. Big really? fan. Okay. I, I was a bigger fan. I at the liked. End than at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I liked how he grew, you know, over the course of this series. First time we meet him, he's like this total deadbeat scammer, just like low life. And then by the end of this book, Harry's like, I, I like this dude. I, I wish I had, you know, given him more of a shot when I was still alive. Like, I like this dude, you know, and he... He ends up being the one who saves the day in the end. He's he yeah. steps up to the plate. It just sucks that it takes the end of the world and him being tortured for him to finally show his best side. You know, I like. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was oh, I hated him at the beginning. He was pissing me off as soon as Harry met him. You know, uh, refusing to even listen to Harry again and again and again and again and again. I was pulling my phone out at this point. Right at this point, I'm telling Morty, all right. You better hope that I don't figure this out without you, because if I do, I'm coming for you next. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> again, we've got that entire other 
side of Morty that I was not expecting, not ready for, and pleasantly surprised to see. So I, I came out as a Morty fan, even though I most definitely was not on that trajectory for the first half of the book, or maybe the first quarter of the book. Uh, so speaking of this, I was going to, um, I have a note. Ah. <laughs> um, did you learn a new word thanks to Morty? I may have. Throw it at me. Badnage. Badnage. I don't even uh, recall so it being used. That's audiobook at me. While, while Harry is watching Morty getting tortured, and Morty's like throwing snark at the corpse taker, and Harry remarks, you know, like, I never would have pegged this guy, you know, for being, you know, not only one to resist in- torture, but also to, to like be such a badass that he's, um, I don't remember the exact term. Let me let me look it up. I know it the up, exact actually. quote you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the one I didn't write down, but I went, ooh, it sounded nice. It sounded French, and I love French. Yeah, he still had the guts to engage in badinage. Can you spell that for me? Is it, it smells like B-A-T-O-N-A-G-E. Oh, badinage. Oh, yeah. badinage. Mm. And it's it's like sarcastically joking basically yeah that's awesome i do remember that exact line because those when yeah he was witnessing some horrific things happening yeah. to morty yeah um yeah yeah <laughs> so i'm done with my character uh, that that was i i had to highlight that one because i was like i've only i've only ever seen that word once before and i'm pretty sure in my entire life and i've never heard anybody actually use it huh it might have been, once so, again, I'll, I'll blame the dulcet tones of James Marsters, and just it flowed so naturally that my brain just kind of purred when I heard it. I didn't even think about I just, by context, got it. So between Butcher's yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent context and placement of the word and Marsters' voice like honey on warm bread, yeah, it <laughs> just kind of went right, by, right down. Nice. I'm ready for okay. uh, miscellaneous points. How about you, my guy? Let's do it. So, Captain Jack Murphy... How was that? That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did like that. That was a good touch. <laughs> yeah. I liked his... Uh, I really appreciated his conversation near the end as well with uh, Uriel. That was entertaining. Very yeah, or he much. hangs up on an archangel. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, hey, I yeah. mean, I didn't lie to him. I just kind of... And then, and then, well, I just was... gave him this and that. It was, <laughs> it was a great, great little bit. It was a very, like... That just made sense, right? Like, for... For what we know about Karen and and the idea of like Murphys as a family in yeah. this story, and then like Irish stereotypes in the real world, like it just made sense that Irish he would be that kind of that he those. would be that kind of like stubborn, snarky, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was some fun. That fit definitely enjoyed. I hope we see him again. Although I can't imagine how he would, but um, mm-hmm. I I got a little just confused little miffed maybe at the convenience store clerk the most obnoxiously written empty pothead Stan. place character yeah. ever written i was like come on man radical dude you know harry points a fucking gun at him the guy doesn't even react nobody who has ever so much as smelled a bag of weed would ever believe that jim butcher has been in the same area code as a marijuana plant this whole scene <laughs> was, was so inaccurate dude oh my god oh <laughs> <sighs> uh, it that's, uh, that's it triggered me. 
Yeah. I don't get triggered very often. Actually, what am I saying? I get triggered all the time on this podcast. I take that back. <laughs> no, um, I, I was actually curious to see if, if you were going to talk about that because, you know, there are certain things, you know, that are just by their nature going to stand out to us. Yeah. Uh, and, and to any reader, uh, when there is something that is a big part of your life, a big part of your identity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to notice when it's used in storytelling. And and for you, Rob, like you've worked in the marijuana industry. Like, I have. You, you know a whole lot. I uh, have. I have grown. Way, have, way more than I do. <laughs> I have grown. I have cooked. I could write books down about the molecular yeah. decarboxylation of the THC and the THCA. Like, I, that's what, I, I, yes, yeah. I know lots about it. And so when I see this, it's like, just talk to somebody, man. You don't have to smoke it yourself. Just talk to somebody. Nobody would tell you that a gun, marijuana makes you so paranoid. A gun is pointed <laughs> at you. You are going to wet yourself until you dehydrate. Like, this guy is just so gone. It's like he's on some other drugs, unfortunately, that uh, I've had to see in the workplace with pills and other shit. That's just not pleasant at all, what it does to Yeah. People. It sounds like this guy is on some serious pills or something like that, and it makes me go, ugh, just do a little bit of homework, maybe. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. But that's I highly doubt that's going to stand out to a lot of people. That's a very subjective right. thing, so I'm not going to do that to be like, come on, butcher. No, no, that's just very subjective. But um, yeah. Well, and so speaking of things that uh, have the tendency to stand out based on our identities and the things we know well, uh, mm-hmm. and that also I am certain do not stand out to most people. I think I know you're going to uh, say. Uh, there is a scene where Fitz and Harry uh, go into Father Forthill's room, and we get a description of Father Forthill's, you know, his whole setup. Uh-huh. And and this is I I've been rather complimentary about uh Butcher's portrayal of Catholicism in uh in the series and I still think like overall it is it is a, a a pretty good portrayal of it. Um a remarkably positive portrayal. Uh however, but this like this is a detail that makes it very clear that uh Butcher is not only not Catholic but probably not Christian or, or not like interested in Christian theology and, and the interactions between different Christian denominations. Uh, you know, we, we have the, the description. I stood in the priest's empty chamber for a moment, looking around it. Everything there was plain, modest, functional, and cheap. The quilt covering the bed looked like it might have been made for Fort Hill by his mother when he went to seminary. There was a King James Bible next to the bed. It, too, looked worn and old. The King James Bible is not a Catholic Bible. Hmm. The King James Bible was specifically anti-Catholic. That was created for the schism uh, when the, the High Church of England splintered off of the Catholic Church. A Catholic priest would not have a worn an old King James Bible next to his bed. Unless it was, like, sentimental or something. But yeah, you're right. Not next to his bed. You're right. That yeah, would, but, yeah, but no, that, that that's the point. It wouldn't yeah. be sentimental. You're right. Like, yeah, it, it, like, maybe a Catholic priest would have a King James Bible in his library where he's, you know, if, if he's a, a particular type of Bible scholar where he's going to be comparing maybe different translations and different... Yeah. Um, but 
like this this is a detail where it's like butcher is writing the scene and he wants to paint a vivid picture so he's like i'm gonna sprinkle in some extra detail here king james bible like when people think of bibles and if you're like can you name any different types of bibles king james bible is like the first thing that's gonna pop into people's heads the only one that i could name myself yeah exactly and and so like Butcher was writing the scene, and he was probably like, "Oh yeah, yeah, let's make this a King James Bible." Like, the, you know, people will be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know what that is." You know, I'm also sure the he's problem probably... is a King James Bible is not a Catholic Bible. <laughs> I'm also sure he's heard this probably in feedback since then. Yeah, but yeah. it's also the kind of thing like, were I not a Catholic, uh, you know, who who has a, a pretty strong grasp of Catholic theology, and uh, I I would not have noticed it if I were <laughs> a a non-religious reader or, you know, uh, less inclined to notice these depictions of Catholicism in literature, <laughs> I would just read over it and be like, yeah, okay. You yeah, know. no, I'll tell uh, that's not even that subjective. <laughs> I'll tell you why that's actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I myself, as a person, I've been very open about the fact that I have no interest at all whatsoever in religion for the most, at all, but I did not know that. And so when I, in turn, conversely, read that scene, I got to the point that King James Bible, and I went, oh yeah, okay, makes sense. I guess he would be reading that. See, I guess so that kind of actually misled me. That that actually turned a small bit of detail in my brain incorrect. And so, hmm, right. I think this is just maybe something that uh, editing could really help as well. Yeah, yeah. Like Several, that's the kind of thing that if, yeah. if he had beta readers, if he used beta readers the way Brandon Especially Sanderson did. Especially if he used did, a wide variety of beta readers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like that would be the that would be the kind of thing that gets caught in the beta process. Although he's got but some yeah. diehard fans that, oh god, it would be so risky for him to, to start choosing beta readers, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got some fanatical fans that are, from what I, under, what I understand, a little uh, a little distinct in the, in the fandom. Uh, but um, but yeah, yeah, no, the, the King James Bible was, um, I don't remember the exact year. It was in the 1600s sometime where, where King James like sponsored, he's like, we, we need our own Bible for the, like the church of England. Well, I thought I had read that it was, it was motivated by, was it? No, it wasn't King James. Never mind. Never mind. Now I'm thinking of a different anecdote entirely. Um, I'm going to stop before I just completely open my mouth and just spout BS. Um, Okay, uh, eternal silence. Science? Sorry. Silence. Eternal silence. Leaves Harry and Leah at one point. Leah makes some comment about proxies. Just whom is mm-hmm. she suggesting eternal silence is a proxy for? Hmm? I had to stop and at least write it down. Well, we got the answer. Did we? Yeah, Demon Reach. Oh, uh, I thought as a being. Oh, you mean you mean like Demon Reach had like? Yeah, because Demon Reach is like stuck on the island, right? So he's so he... using the statue as like a proxy to communicate off the island. Hold on, that was Demon Reach himself speaking to Harry. Or it, so, so the thought... the clue for me is that uh, Eternal Silence speaks in these like giant italic- italicized, uh, you know, all caps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, Demon Reach talks in giant italicized all caps at the end of the book. That's that's it. I mean, and and the proxy comments okay. and some of the comments that Demon Reach makes, you know, like 
Um, huh. I thought yeah, maybe he's just it, like a proxy for death itself. Like this is just a message from something greater. Of course, I wasn't finished the book at this point. So no, yeah, it's definitely Demon Reach. Mm, okay. All right. All right. Uh, I have a couple more, but I'll give you a chance to throw some forward. Anything else? Uh, let's take a look at my notes. I think I may be about through, um, yeah, I mentioned, I had a note about how I suspected Kincaid immediately, and then I liked the twist. Um, no, I think, I think we've covered everything in my notes. Okay. Okay. All right, I'll just close up then with my couple here. What is up with the overhyping of wolves in fantasy? Why is everybody so enamored with wolves? I have the quote here. Wolves <laughs> are a real threat to humans. They're basically the number two predator on the planet. People don't remember that wolves are far stronger, far faster, far more dangerous than human beings. That humanity taught wolves to fear and avoid them. Yada yada continues. And he says, a wolf with no fear can tear several human beings apart. So I'm going to do my usual pissing off of everybody who just wants to forget that physics exists. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Um, people have a ha like just the over sensationalizes kind of thing. Wolves are the number one overhyped creature. I'm sorry, but the average the average wolf, Eurasian and North American wolf. I looked this up to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass. Seventy to eighty pounds maximum. All right, my husky is about 75, 80 pounds. I'm sorry, no eighty pound canine is going to and I quote tear several human beings apart unless they're all children. All right, I wouldn't want to fight one. I get screwed up. But tear several yeah. human beings apart. Just, there are little points where people will just add a little bit of extra flavor to a description for a little bit of dramatic flair. And sometimes I just go, oh, but think about that logically. I mean, yeah. So my theory with this is that people love dogs. I know. Wolves they are love, like I mean, dogs. I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. And so, so they, they want wolves to be super cool because they can use them as these badass hunter killers. And their dogs, the so people love sheep. them. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I mean, just no, I, I'm not going to go into spoilers, but think about Hopper in the Wheel of Time. Yeah, Hopper is a wolf. Yeah, and people love Hopper. Oh yeah, love Hopper. Oh yeah, because Hopper is a wolf and a dog, mm -hmm. and has a human personality. Or a, a human-like personality. Oh, yeah. and it's like that—that's like the total package of dog lover wet dream in literature. I tell like, you what, <laughs> I take back a little bit of what I said. A seventy to eighty-pound dog could probably tear my throat out because I would be too busy trying to pet him. I'd be like, "Good boy, come here," <laughs> and then he would tear me apart. But seriously, yeah. though, I, as much as I love dogs, this is getting out of hand. Everybody, okay? Now I get it. I'm gonna have people coming at me. An 80 pound dog running at 30 miles an hour weighs a lot more than 80 pounds. I get that. But and in this moment, I know this is going to be a comment that we're going to get. In this moment, Harry's talking about Billy and the werewolves. Those are not yeah. normal wolves, okay? Yeah. yeah. But he is talking about normal wolves. I get that in the yes. moment the subject is the other ones, but he's, but he's talking about wolves in general. When he's talking about, you know, people often forget this. People aren't aware that Billy exists. He's talking about regular wolves, and they're 70 yeah. to 80 pounds. Some of them are huge, way bigger than that. But well, like, look, stop overhyping them. You, you put an average human being one on one against a wolf. The wolf is almost always going to win. Depends. But on if you being. put several human beings against one wolf, 
the wolf is not going to tear them all apart. <laughs> I Give me a 120-pound wolf. I think I'm staying alive. I don't think I can kill it. It's not going to kill me, though. One-on-one, -on -one, mm. I'm a 200-pound iron worker. Been there for 10 years. I can... Mm, I don't know, man. Like, I've... Like I just think about the. I'm a, um, I'm a broad boy. Uh, so so there's a there was a pretty pretty big news story out of Fort Collins where I live a couple oh, of yeah? years ago where where there's a guy um uh, who was running you know like like an athlete dude dude's an athlete you know and he was on a run up in the uh in the foothills just outside of Fort Collins and he got attacked by a mountain lion. A and it was like it was like a 35 40 pound mountain lion, it wasn't fully grown. Okay, and he killed it. It's a big kitty, but it fucked him up. Oh, dude, a cat's a different story, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but but so think about that though. This is twice the size of that mountain lion. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I, I think one on one, most dog. human beings are not gonna take a wolf, <laughs> yeah. Most aren't, most are yeah. most people are what 160 pounds, 5'8, something like that. I, yeah, I have an, a seventy-five pound dog. I can pick him up, and I mean, yeah, no, I'm. I got this is weird. What a what a what a weird t typical teenage boy <laughs> conversation we're having here. Like, could you fight a wolf, man? No, I could fight a wolf, man. He's talking about smoking pot. This is turning into the Joe Rogan experience over here. Oh my god. Um. No. Yeah, I uh, don't. I mean, yeah. Okay. So Do you have wolves, any other Rob could points? take a wolf. Come at me. Seriously. Um, he, uh, oh, a question here. My last miscellaneous point. This is actually about... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare two characters here. Recall our bitching about Susan Rodriguez. Neither Drew or I are fans, right? We're not fans Correct. Susan Rodriguez. Correct. One of our primary complaints about her, at least one of mine was, I'm, I'm pretty sure you agreed, was how she so willingly and obnoxiously kept throwing herself into the worst kind of danger she could find. Endlessly Correct. complicating things for Harry's safety and his sanity in case he can't save her and then feels guilty. She would always find the nearest, at least it would seem, the nearest most life-threatening risk in her area and just throw herself at it repeatedly. I'm sour still about that decision in the vampire ball. I want to say it was book four, summer night, just showing up there. My serious question now, though, how is what Father Forthill did in going against all logic and reason to go talk to the evil sadist Kinetomancer, who was, he was very warned explicitly how dangerous and evil and insane that man was. Fort Hill decided, well, I'm gonna go talk to this guy. Surely he'll see the wisdom in my words. I'm definitely not putting myself and others at risk for this insane stunt, which I believe I can disarm an insane sorcerer with my kind words. Like, is that different? And if it is, where's the I distinction? I do think it's different. Where's the distinction? I think it's different in two ways. Okay. One, Father Fort Hill's entire life, his entire life's work is predicated on doing exactly this. This is his life's work. Two, Susan's life's work was, was investigating the supernatural. There's a difference between investigating supernatural and fighting the forces of darkness. Okay. One would, okay. All right. And two, That's an argument. Father yeah. Fort Hill has reasonable knowledge and expectation that there may be supernatural aid available to him. How did he... Because he met Harry's ghost and he knows that Harry's no, ghost... No, because, because he is involved with the Knights of the Cross and he knows about the true existence of angels and, and knows that uh, God works in mysterious ways and the Almighty 
sends help sometimes for those who need it. That he has a reasonable expectation. Track he has him. a reasonable expectation that he is not going to be just throwing himself away. Why not just wait that for help? That is completely different from what Susan does. I don't agree. I, that 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 no, I, I I can't agree with that myself. He think he, about why right, not right, wait then? Think like, about every speech. Think about every speech Michael has ever given about the concept of mercy and the concept of communicating and giving people choice. that's trying to invoke fate or something like that, or invoke... No. Ameri- like, Father Forthill sees this as his holy duty to try to save people. How could he have expected it to go any differently, though? That's my question. Like, because he, he has was, faith. That does not jive with... For me, that's not, a, that's not enough of an excuse to put himself and others in danger like that. On faith. That's not enough of an excuse. That's directly putting several other li- lives in danger when they have to come save you. I don't accept that. I can't. No. No, y- you, are, you are assigning like two steps of logic further down the road. You're, oh, so yeah. this, is, this is actually really important logic, for this book. Right? This is really important for this book. The theme in this book is choice. People make choices. Right. But then how can we condemn Susan? Father Forthill making the choice to go try to save these children doesn't mean that he is responsible for putting the lives of Harry and Butters and Daniel in danger. They made the choice to go try to save him. And that's explicitly made clear when Daniel confronts Butters and says, no, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be here. And Butter says, no, I am making this choice. Karen Murphy does not order me around. This is a major theme in the book. This was at a time, though, when Harry very much had other responsibilities that could have been far bigger and world-ending, though. And Harry made that choice. Okay. That's still a gigantic risk, though. That's just what bothered me. It's the, the risk there. I don't... We'll have to... But it's a risk he's willing to take. The risk Shit, Susan takes showing up at the, the vampire ball in Grave Peril directly puts Harry in danger. Mm-hmm. She already knew Harry was going to be there. She already knew it was a volatile situation. She already knew that if she showed up, things could go horribly wrong. And she chose to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Father Forthill went by himself. Mm-hmm. That's on, the difference right there. On the assumption right that God works in mysterious ways and he would uh, that receive help. No, 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 no. Not he the didn't assumption. go there expecting, well, if this goes wrong, I'm going to get saved. But he went there on the strength of his faith that I need my duty, my moral religious duty, is to try to save these children. If I die in the line of duty, so be it. Mm. Yeah, He's I think not going there I being th- like, well, if this doesn't work, at least Harry's going to come put his life on the line to not save Harry me. In particular. Not like, Harry in particular. That's, that's not what Father Forthill's thinking. That's, that's not at all the situation. Whereas Susan showing up at the vampire ball, she knows doing that is going to put Harry in danger. And she chooses to do it anyway because she's curious. I still don't, I still, I can't, I still don't, I don't agree. I can't. Well, let us know if you're listening, which side you fall on. 
But um, all right, favorite scenes. All right, favorite scenes. All right, uh, I re- I uh, briefly alluded to two honorable mentions. Do you have any honorable mentions? Uh, so Bob's apartment is yes. my honorable mention. Cool, cool. Uh, one of mine was Bob versus Evil Bob, rolling around, thrashing on the ground, throwing hands, go, 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 and then Harry's that one line that which objectively I don't know why it hit me so hard, but it did when he goes, "Damn it, don't make me regret this, Bob," and he just gets go. You know, it's just ah, it was so much awesome. I love that moment. I was cheering for Bob there. Um, and my other honorable mention: Harry's ghost army arriving, and on his last minute command, all simultaneously yelling "boo." That was fun. <laughs> Kind of odd to consider how that would sound, but just funny on paper, so I like it. Okay. Sorry, everybody. What happened there was Rob accidentally spoiled something for Drew, and he's going to have to cut that out because I just realized that I have, of course, on my phone, two different note files, one for Cold Days and one for Ghost Story, and I accidentally added a favorite scene from Cold Days into my Ghost Story scenes here. So, Drew just removed that, and you're listening to me uh, take the cheap answer and use one of my previous ones. Bob versus Evil Bob. That's one of my honorable mentions. Okay. There now. There we go. All right. So, my, my third favorite Oof, that was is yeah. near the end when Murphy and Mortimer are outside during the aftermath of the whole showdown. And, uh, and Harry, you know, overhears them. And, and this scene I just thought was really, really touching. You know, Mort says, he's talking about Harry, he says, came back to help. It happens sometimes. Some people die feeling that something was incomplete. I guess Dresden thought that he hadn't done enough to make a difference around here. Mort shook his head, as if the big goon didn't turn everything upside down whenever he showed up. Karen smiled faintly and shook her head. He always said you knew ghosts. You're sure it was really him? Mort eyed her. Me and everyone else, yeah. Karen scowled and stared into the middle distance. Mort frowned and then his expression softened. You didn't want it to be his ghost, did you? Murphy slowly shook her head, but said nothing. You needed everyone to be wrong about it. Because if it really was his ghost, Mort said, it means that he really is dead. Murphy's face just crumpled. Even though we knew this is what Murphy's been thinking the entire time, having it just laid out like this, especially from Mortimer, makes it really powerful. I thought it was a great character moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually wondering how that didn't make it at least into my Murphy notes, even though it was an observation from someone else. Huh, that was a brilliant moment. I'm kind of poking myself for not... Uh, remembering to include that one. That was a good one. That was a great one. Especially as a huge Murphy fan like I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll be talking more about her in the next book. Uh, my second favorite was Harry saying goodbye to Mouse and Maggie. <laughs> we were talking about this ending here, like earlier in the at the start of the show. Just, I can only imagine reading this book upon release thinking that, like, oh my god, this could actually be the end. Like, it's... It's so touching. It's so well done. I don't even. Ex- I don't need to explain. You know. It, I'm sure. Yeah. It, it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. So this is also my second favorite. Ah, <laughs> nice. Good. Good. Yep. All right. Right back to agreeing. Yeah. Awesome. Didn't take long. All right. My favorite yeah. then. Unless you wanted to expand upon that, any reason in particular that I didn't touch on that was also your second favorite? No, it was just a a really 
really touching scene, you know. Mm. Yeah. Okay. My my very favorite scene was Daniel Carpenter versus Aristides. Hmm. Daniel realizing that the bluff was up before anyone else did. Cool. Shows that he's a little more attentive, a little more, a little more clever, or maybe a little more socially aware. Um, seeing Aristides pull out his knife, and Daniel immediately just throws Fitz and Butters behind him. I was fist pumping. I was like, "Yes, that is a boy raised by Michael Carpenter right there." Also, side note, I said uh, at the end of our proven guilty episode, I was excited to hopefully see more of Charity Carpenter in the series going forward. Uh, even though she's made it into the books, you know, several times since, she's never on page. She only shows up when someone, usually a carpenter, gets mortally wounded, and it turns out, oh, they're not mortally wounded. They're wearing a set of body armor made by Charity. Thanks for the vital assistance in book eight, Charity. I guess it's back to, well, that's going to make a dry remark about getting sent back to the kitchen. But I suppose in this case, it would be sent back to the armory. Like, what? Where did she go? <laughs> Why I wanted more charity. Well, we we find out where she went at the end of this book. She's busy raising Maggie. I get, I, I get. I mean, yeah. Just I wanted, <laughs> I wanted more of the charity that we got in Proven Guilty. And yeah, the yeah, armor yeah. and the kicking ass and the dark past and the emotion and the the actual grudging turning around on Harry and beginning to trust each other. Like I wanted more of that. But she, the only time we get her now is when it's oh, by the way. You thought they were dead. Nah, they got armor made by charity. It's like that's the only time yeah. she gets back, and it's just frustrated me. I wanted to see more, <laughs> but my favorite—sorry, I, I went down a rabbit hole there. The Daniel Carpenter versus Aristides was my favorite scene in this book. Okay, well, my favorite scene uh, probably won't surprise too many people. Uh, the beginning of chapter fifty, when Uriel shows up, and Uriel's conversation with Harry. Uh, really, it's the entire sequence from like here until Harry makes his choice of, of which door to go through, but specifically the beginning of it. And when Uriel starts talking about redressing the balance mm, and yes. seven words and, uh, you know, and, and what it means to choose. And I just, I really, really liked that. Really liked that. Mm. Uriel is, I was expecting to be a lot more terrified and, uh, threatened by Uriel, but so far he seems like he's dope. So I'm like, okay, alright, alright. Yeah. yeah. Uriel's interesting. Very interesting. And, uh, and uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh so I was I was gonna say I just have one honorable mention. Oh go for um, it. Um that's part of this sequence. I just thought it was a wonderful little moment uh when they go to the carpenter's house. And oh, it's just yes. crawling with guardian angels. Oh, I was yeah, like, that was so cool. Yes. Thank you. Like, <laughs> that was so cool. He has done, this man has done more than enough to earn the protection of the guardian angels. Like, yes, he has. God damn it. Oh, that's yeah, actually, like exactly I, shouldn't say, I shouldn't curse with that particular one in this. Circumstance. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love it. It's, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Excellent book. Eight out of 10 from me. So yeah, yeah, it was, like I said at the beginning, it was much needed for me that that I finished this book caring again about what was going on in the series. Because if, uh, like, I, I would have had a really hard time if I went two books in a row where I'm just like, I, I don't care I the way I did after changes. Your opinion so. on changes took me so much by surprise. 
You like this one more than changes. I think that alone is going to be a, a hot take. Significantly, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> Everything about my opinion of changes is a hot take at this point. Like, I'm I'm well aware of what the fandom's, uh, you know, opinion of that okay. book is, how, how beloved it is. I don't agree with what you're saying, uh, but I'll defend you, you know. right to say it, my friend. Come at me. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yes. But, like, look, you know, it's... This is reading, right? You know, this is a mostly subjective discussion. Uh, there, there are very few objective, concrete writing issues that I had with changes. Uh, most of the reasons that I didn't like that book were, you know, unique to me. And most of the reasons that I liked this book so much more are unique to me because of those issues I had with changes. Mm. So, you know, like if, if somebody wants to say, Oh, well changes is my favorite book in the series and ghost stories, my least favorite or my third least favorite or whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. Like that yeah. is, that is absolutely your experience reading the books. Um, everybody's a different reader. Yeah. Hey, just, someone wants just because I have a podcast doesn't mean, uh, that I think something makes you wrong. Like uh, it's, it's reading books, you know? Yeah. And if someone wants to come at me and say, Rob, you can't take a wolf. Like, Listen, I can take a wolf. Okay. <laughs> I had to bring that back. No, if it oh, was, I, hey, listen, if it was one of them really big ones, or if it was one of Billy and company, they could turn me into sausage before I could say woof. I get that. 80 pound wolf, 100 pound wolf, bring it. Had to get that one in there again. Okay, now we're done. My money's on the wolf. No, dude. <laughs> all depends open field yeah uh. wolf's gonna kill me give me some trees to like pick it up and mm, rib it on i'm good yeah sorry i wouldn't so, uh, want to a dog i don't want to come off as an animal abuser i love my puppy <laughs> he's a good boy i'm gonna go pet him now let's go let's so, stuff so i go pet him sorry everybody i believe this is going to be episode 147 oh, of the Eking out loud podcast uh next up we will be heading right into cold days um I think we're going to be heading right into cold days. There's an there's a chance there may be an off episode that slips in there. Uh, Chances are good. Chances with a, maybe, maybe a not. collaboration. Um, uh, it's either going to be cold days or the black tongue thief will be the next episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, as always, you know, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud, or on Coffee if you want to make a one-time donation. That's ko-fi.com. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Oh, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. we almost didn't do it. What the hell, Drew? We didn't do the final draft. Whoa. We didn't do the final draft. Okay, we got it. Just in time, though. Woo. Woo. That was a branch Saved last it. grabbed at the end. <laughs> This is what happens when we don't record an episode for like two weeks because yep. we've been out of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had a regular old coffee, although once again, I'm using my friend's merchandise mug here. By the way, the word I was looking for was merchandise last week. I, I, I had a, nearly a stroke trying to remember the word mem 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 memorabilia. It was merchandise. I have like five of these mm. friends cut these mugs, and they're amazing. This one says, meet me at Central Perk. And I have a coffee. Oh, and I have there you there. go. And I'm just having a nice flavored raspberry water. I have a little bit of jitters, but that's okay because I've got a lot of schoolwork to do tonight. What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a barrel-aged Imperial Stout from Ooh. Cerebro Brewing Company solid in Denver, choice. Colorado. Both solid uh, choices. This one is a uh, a blend of base stouts aged in 
two different rye-finished cognac barrels, an Eagle Rare bourbon barrel, and a 15-year Pappy Van Winkle barrel for two years. Uh, and I, I want to point out, uh, for those who are whiskey fans, uh, that Pappy Van Winkle barrel will probably raise your eyebrows. Uh, <laughs> Pappy is one of, if not the most sought-after bourbon. Uh, it is extremely expensive, very, very difficult to get your hands on. Um, and so Pappy barrel-aged beers are also vanishingly rare. Uh I've never had Pappy, so I can't speak to whether or not, like, that, you know, that barrel, like, enhances this beer a whole ton. But, but of course, you know, it raised my eyebrows when I saw it. Um, honestly, I get more of the, the rye uh, kind of spiciness as far as the barrel goes. But on top of that, all that ridiculous barrel aging, uh, it was conditioned on coconut, almond, and Vanuatu vanilla beans. So it is a pastry stout, barrel-aged mm. in a, a a veritable smorgasbord of spirit barrels. Uh, it's 14.4%. It's very delicious. Super thick, sweet. A little bit of that spice from the rye. A little, little boozy, but not overwhelming. Uh, but I thought this one was... Uh, pretty pretty appropriate for this book, given the unknowable uh, nature of the afterlife and and the way okay. Harry just doesn't understand what's moving him, what's moving the people around him throughout the book. Uh, this is the second batch Cerebral has done of this beer. It is called Mysterious Forces. There are plenty of those. Yes. Running amok in this world. Yes, indeed. We're going to meet a few of them in the future. Yeah, and uh, now that we're done with the, now the that final we are draft, done with episode, yeah. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, <laughs> and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Take a wolf! And... Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>